Welcome to the Grumpy Surfer Podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. My guest today is John Jackson. John's a serving Royal Marine Commando and also an Olympian. In our conversation today, John talks about why he joined the Royal Marines and how he worked his way through the GB bobsleigh ranks to become a bronze medal winner in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. Please enjoy a Grumpy Surfer's conversation with John Jackson. John Jackson, welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, and uh, thank you for, for having me and giving me the, the chance to be here. Mate, it's a pleasure, it's mine. Bit of a legend on here, so uh, yeah, I'm very, very honoured. Um, so like I do with any of the podcasts, what I'd like to do is just start off, um, if you can talk about yourself, you know, a little bit about your up- upbringing and stuff, and you know, how you came to join the Royal Marines. Um, so I'm originally from... Uh, up in the northeast, a small town called uh, Barnard Castle, which may sound familiar to some of you because it was recently in the news a lot for a, a quite a well-known high-profile MP going to visit his family up north during the COVID lockdown for uh, testing his eyesight. So that's recently been in the in the news quite a bit. Um, but yeah, that's where I sort of grew up, um, a small little historical market town between there and Darlington. As a as a young kiddie, and then in in my sort of teenage years, um, yeah, sort of got into a bit of trouble with the police and usual sort of bits and pieces as you do as as a, a teenager. But I think a lot of that was to do with when I was a, a a very young kiddie at sort of two and a bit years old. My dad was killed in a car crash, so oh, right. I think that that time at sort of coming into that early teens, fourteen, sort of fifteen, was starting to manifest into probably now when we look back and what what we know more sort of some mental health issues trying to work out who my dad was what what was you know trying to find out information that wasn't really that forthcoming sometimes um maybe because other people didn't want to speak about it or they, they just thought they'd told me the, the the enough information that they thought was was good enough um but that led me down a little path that started getting me into a bit of bother with the police um and Eventually, I had to make the decision of I need to do something else with my life or I'm going to end up in, in prison. And that was to, to join the sort of military. If you talk to, I'd say, 60% of people that actually join the military, I mean, I'm not saying it's the same sort of storyline, but a lot of people have kind of those those stories, don't they, about why they join the military. You know, they get into a bit of trouble with the police and then they, then they join the army, the RAF or something to kind of get away from that a little bit it's kind of a bit of an, not an escapism I think what it is is you know what you're talking about there you know your father dying when you're younger is you're kind of trying to find a bit of authority in your life whether it's a subconscious thing I don't, I don't know yeah yeah possibly uh, I mean it didn't help as well when I left school I knew I was going straight into a job in as a, a sort of a builder's apprentice um, and, and I'd started all the college work to be a, a, a joiner uh, and that was the trade that I was going to specialise in. But being in the northeast, and especially during the winter time, the, the work just wasn't there. So as an apprentice, I got laid off three times within three years. And it just wasn't a sustainable lifestyle that I think, is, is this going to be what it's like for the rest of my working career? So I had a friend at the time who was in the Royal Navy, and he was coming back, obviously, on leave and spinning his stories about being all over the world and what they were up to and... Uh, telling us all that and I, and I 
sort of bought into that. So initially I was going to join the, the Navy. And when I spoke to him about it, he very much said, you're not suited to the Navy. Um, go join the Marines, which at that point, other than understanding that they'd done a little bit of work in the Falklands, I didn't really know much about what the Royal Marines was, was what they did, what they, you know, what was their role. So off I toddled to the careers office and the, the Royal Navy sort of um, manager or whatever that, who was in there at the time said, I'm going to put this video on. I want you to watch it. And if you come back to me and say, you like it, I'll sign you up. And basically it was a video, a recruitment video of people getting thrashed around, would be common with kit on and just look like they were just getting smashed all over the place and, yeah. and physically demanding um, stuff. And I just, I just looked at that. Yeah, I want some of that. It, I just bought into what it was all about from that point and then went through the uh, career process, joined up and, you know, here we are 23 and a half years later Still plodding along. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Did, uh, did you what sort of training? Did do you remember what sort of training you did from the point of going into the careers office to you know doing the PRMC? Uh, because I, I know from my experiences, when I uh, when I decided I was going to join up, I literally had no and no idea that the that the Royal Marines training side of it was endurance based. I was a sprinter, so I played like rugby, and I, had, you know, my whole body was fast twitch, fast twitch fibers, you know. So when I, I I was I got told to do some runs, so I was doing like three or four mile runs, and then when I rocked up at Lipster, we were cracking like you know six and a half seven minute mile pace of that. I was like, what is going on? Like yeah. you know, it's crazy. Well, I, I was quite lucky because my um, my mum worked at the local sort of Young Offenders Institute that was based in Barna Castle. Um, and a couple of the PT staff that worked in there, the gym staff, they were ex-Royal Marines. Okay. So she put me in touch with, with one of them. And, and from about probably 17 and a half, 18, he actually took me under his wing and started training me. So I'd meet with him three or four times a week. Sometimes we'd go and use the gym within the, the, the prison facility or other times we'd go out for a run, but we'd always meet at the prison and he started instilling a little bit of discipline in me. Like I had to turn up wearing uh, at least a polo shirt. So I was quite uh, presentable and just trying to instill that little bit of ethos before I got into it. But ultimately prior to me joining up, I was doing lots of body weight stuff, a little bit of strength work, just trying to build that up but mainly CV um, and, and sort of little circuits. And then um, we'd go do hill sprints, running f no more than sort of four miles, really. Um, but it was in interesting from where I started off and I was struggling to sort of keep up with him and he'd sort of start disappearing off into the distance to, to eventually, as I was getting to that point of joining up, of being able to beat him on certain things. Okay. Um, so it showed the improvement to me. And then that I think that... In, gave me a, a good sort of base level to at least come into the, the core with. Yeah, I mean, having that sort of person, again, as a role model and having the knowledge that he's kind of installing into you as well that you probably don't even know about, would it give you, would it have given you a, a, a bigger advantage, really, like going into it because you know what to expect? Well, you know, the majority of people these days, when they go into training, yeah, okay, they've played Call of Duty on the computer and, you know, they've got an unrealistic 
insight into kind of what the military is about. So they kind of go into it a little bit blindsided and then when they're getting shouted at and, you know, told to do things and they're like, it, it, it hurts. Yeah. You know, you would have had that little bit of insight into that already before you even started. Yeah, I think it helps with my, because um, we, were, we were looking at sort of doing rope climbing in the gym, which is a skill base that not many people will get. And oh, yeah. We, we went out, uh, some days we went out over across to the lakes and we did sort of map reading. So it was teaching me how to use a, a, a map and just very basic skills to sort of get me set up for going in. So actually, you know, for, for him, he, he quite gave me quite a good base level to come into the Marines at. Um, and then obviously the rest of it was down to me to try and stick stick it in and and, and make it through uh, the initial training which was which is tough in in anybody's sort of you know you, you can think that you're physically fit or mentally tough or whatever it is that you, you're coming with but it is an absolute leveler that, that sort of commando training sort of thing as as you know it, it's very stuck tough and I think at about week six or seven, I was like, I've had enough. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> and not not because of the physical side, it was more because I was one of these uh, admin biffs that was still up at like one, two o'clock in the morning, just um, still doing ironing, still doing folding, you know, and when you're getting back up again at stupid o'clock, the, the following morning, you, you just get to a point where you're like, nah, this is not, not for me. But again, a couple of conversations with people at home and, and, and Chris, who was the, the guy who trained me up, he was like, oh, ironing and, and stuff you, you've got to do that wherever you are so just suck it up and don't leave and grizz it out and that that sort of helped me again just to turn that little corner and go yeah uh, i'll stick with this a bit longer and then you sort of get through that that little sticking point and away you go again yeah i always found training more of a um a tick off list is kind of the the analogy i use now where you know you go and do the prmc there's something in there that's probably the most horrible thing you've ever done, like tick. So the next time you do something, whether it was a run or a speed march or something like that, you're going, well, do you know what? That actually was the worst thing I've ever done. So then it's another tick in the box. So right, your four-mile speed march is the worst thing you've ever done. And then once you get to, as you're going along, you're ticking all these things off. And the way I kind of saw it was, when I passed out a train, I'd had enough. I was like, literally, I've had enough of this. But then when you look back at the ego, you know, whether it's yomping up the Hindu Kush or something like that in Afghanistan or with, with mega heavy weight on your, on your back, you're kind of like, well, I've actually done something harder than this anyway. So you've got that mental resilience already. And that's kind of like how I, how I, how I used it a little bit, yeah. you know, is I was using those little tick lists to go, well, this is not so bad. Yeah. I've had it worse. Yeah, I think that, that's something that we we can all relate to certainly from from in our background is that that hardship there and that shared hardship it, it's knowing that you're that, that that piece of that little puzzle no matter how it big or small it is that you don't want to be the piece that's missing and let everybody else let everybody else down which keeps that sort of self-motivation or commitment to the the task to to push on um but yeah, it's when you look back now at what you do in commando training I think now like a 43 year old going Nah, I wouldn't do that. Again. <laughs> <laughs> My body couldn't take it at this at, yeah. at this stage of the stage of the game. I don't mm. think. No, I feel you. So you, what did you pass out in '96? So um, no, I joined in November '96. Okay. We passed out in the July of '97, uh, mm -hmm. and it, and it was quite 
good because we obviously did the the King Squad bit, which is two weeks of marching at the back end of training. Then we went straight to the um, Edinburgh Tattoo. Okay, cool. So, and we were the one of the marching pieces there. So we got you know a six week stint of drill, which was quite um, boring itself, but the actual part of being in Edinburgh and it was it was quite a good routine that we worked there because it was you, you do your show from I think we had to be there for half six or half five whatever it was we'd finish by ten but then it was like right let's go into Edinburgh have a few drinks catch up with everybody whatever you were going to do and then you didn't have to turn two till twelve the next day so it was and then a bit of practice boom and you were into it so it was quite a good routine especially when you you sort of straight out of training going ah yeah this is this is more like it this is not getting thrashed every day being stupid this is like sort of grown-up rules and then after the Edinburgh tattoo we went straight to 40 commando in Taunton as my first unit okay cool what did you do at um, 40 did you did you do did they get Kosovo so I when I went to 40 the first sort of thing that we did um, we had a couple of trips abroad sort of US um, in Holland but the first thing I did operationally was obviously Northern Ireland um, that was sort of 2000 nothing or, or maybe 99 2000 whichever whichever way it was so one of the last ones then because what Ireland sort of tethered out didn't it what 2002 or 2000 it was, it was close to that end where like it's the last ones the core did anyway yeah it, it will have been and we were in um, Belfast at the time and it was when um Foot patrols went back onto the ground for the first time in in many years, just because of it. It was kicking off, so at least we got to do a little bit, not just sat in a in a in a, in a compound sanger somewhere, just not doing anything and reacting to stuff. At least we got out on the ground and got to do uh, a few bits and pieces, which were which was interesting. Um, but yeah, there was quite a lot of good stuff while I was at forty. I was there for my first five years of my career. Um, it got to the point where. Obviously, the the twin tower stuff kicked off, and, and I remember quite vividly we we're in Cyprus, and we we were doing some sort of drills, exercises, whatever we were doing there, and we'd stopped off on the way back to camp to a little shop, and because it was absolutely roasting, and we got like a, a an ice cream and a, a cold drink each, and we walked into this little sort of supermarket, and it had just happened that the the first plane had gone into one of the towers and obviously it was all on the news and we were looking at this going, is, is this real? <laughs> is it, you know, and, then, and then, you know, minutes later, it's the, the second came in and that, that was the realisation that, yeah, this just isn't an accident and something big is going to happen, you know, worldwide that this is going to kick off. Obviously, at that point, we didn't know what and how, if at all, the Royal Marines would be involved. Um. But I got stuck in a little bit of a point where we knew something was going to happen. But prior to this, there'd been a lot of, for, for different other sort of uh, scenarios, there'd been a lot of on the bus, off the bus, get your kit ready, oh no, stop, you know, as military life is. And we were told, me and my, uh, myself and one of my mates we were in recce troop at the time, we were told to, um, you're going on your juniors. So we were like, right, this is going to kick off here. Can we, can we sort of, push that uh, right a little bit and wait until after this and then go on it. Uh, but they said, if you turn this down now, you're going to career foul yourself for two years. So there'll be no promotion. So we took took the hit reluctantly to go and do our junior command course. And then obviously a couple of weeks into that, we start getting the stories back that the lads are on the ground. They're doing this, they're doing mm. that. So it was a bit like, oh, we've sort of missed out on that. Um, and then from there, my career path went into the, 
PT world into the rehab world. So it sort of, I didn't get into that Afghan sort of Iraq um, environment, which obviously most of the core at that time yeah. did. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was quite lucky because, you know, I, I passed out in I passed out in two thousand and one. I went up to up to Kamachan four or five, and then I did an anti tanks course, and straight out of that, I went, I I, I did uh, up to Khan, which was you know lucky for the Taliban around the Hindi Kush, and and uh, the Pakistan border and stuff. Came back, and I was out to Iraq. So, when you were on your juniors, you know, I was one of those few people that were doing that, but. Wasn't that great anyway, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, the, the Iraq stuff I didn't really do as much as like what Forty did. Um, but uh, still, even even though you went on to your juniors and you missed that out, you you still you still kind of like want to get into those situations, don't you? Sometimes, and and I've always said to people, you know which you probably know now is you're kind of careful what you wish for too with it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, I think that's a, a big thing and, and probably come into that a little bit later when I speak about my, my sport and stuff as, as we go on. But it's, it's that point of, yeah, some of me wishes that I could have been there, but if I was there, I wouldn't have been on the other path. Yeah. And, and you, like, see, so yeah, there was no way of having both. And I chose one path to go down, which took me away from more of the soldiering side of things into the sporting arena. Yeah. Which I suppose when I look back at what the career office was trying to sell of all these opportunities to play sport worldwide and do all these sort of adventurous training, like you're climbing, canoeing, all the, all over the world. I bought, that's sort of what I bought yeah. into because you don't really understand what being a, a commando is all about until you've act, until you're actually in. So at that point, the selling point was for me sport and act, being active, um, which is sort of I suppose I, I achieved that by what I eventually got into yeah. um, later in in my career. So you did your juniors. What what made you want to join the PT branch? So the physical training instructor branch. Yes. Yeah, so, so for me, realistically, within the Royal Marines, the for many people. There are three avenues um, as they want to sort of progress forward. One would be going down the special forces route. One would have been the sort of mountain leader route, which again is is hard graft and you're doing a lot more sneaky beaky stuff. And then the other is the physical training route again because they're they're the sort of three I think that are held in sort of high regard around the core because they're physically demanding. Um, and with having a, a sort of young family at the time, the asset although part of me wanted to go down the SF route, I knew that that would take me away from my family. So at the point, I, I was just like, it's not for me at this moment in time. So that's why I joined the, the physical training branch. And luckily they were struggling to find corporals at the time. There was maybe Lance Jack, but they were, they were actively looking for promoted corporals at that time. So I fit that balance. Did I have um, time to prepare fully physically? Um, probably not. And, when you go back to that that hardship of knowing what your the, the hardest thing that you've probably done in the core uh, and how you can relate to that to push on to do other hard things and get through it mentally i think for me it was the 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 crawl of death did you do that as part of yours yeah so the 200 meter crawl and the rope climb at the end yeah, the yeah. Two, so 200 meter crawl on your belly uh over a distance of 200 meters it was absolutely emotional and 
what what broke me a little bit was knowing that when you're looking up and you're only sort of halfway through it and some of the other guys have already finished up the rope and down and you're still going, oh man, I'm just eating dirt. And you can, <laughs> especially on the dry day because you, you were getting the dust off other people and you it was just absolute misery. No skin on your elbows, no skin on your knees. And you're like, what am I doing? What am I, is this the best life choice at the moment? And you, you really sort of start to consider what how, how you've sort of got to this point where you're like, really? You know, I'm in my mid twenties and I'm crawling around like a, a a little kid on the belly, you know, on your belly button, just getting thrashed. <laughs> but you get through it, and you, like you say, you plod on to the next thing, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a three-hour session on the bottom field, isn't it, on the assault course? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was just kind of like that. I just, I, I was, I could just remember going, yeah, let's just get to the end of it. Just, just get it done with. Move on, yeah. move on to the next horrible thing. Yeah, what? Surely there can't be anything worse than this. <laughs> yeah. But there is. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's uh, that. That's definitely been one of my highlights of misery throughout my sort of time in the Royal Marines. Of just visit, revisiting that, thinking I, I did not like that at, no. at all. Um, but like you say, you push through and you get on to the other end and start the next horrible evolution. <laughs> yeah. So you started your PT course when was that? What two thousand? Um, so I started it in the summer of two thousand two. Okay. Um, and obviously we we finished that in the December of two thousand two, and then went straight into the um, sort of six week adventure training course in in Wales. Okay. Uh, in in the January of two thousand three, which again was quite miserable. Um, seems to be every time I've done AT with the PT branch, it's always been a miserable experience because it's either been cold. Oh, we've just got thrashed. So it's, it's <laughs> I mean, January's not the best time to be in Wales anyway, is it no, really? It, it, it's not. And when you think you're going canoeing and you're having a snowball fight prior to that, or you, or you, <laughs> and you're climbing up a mountain face or, or a rock face and you're putting your hand in cold, icy holes to, to and you're just like, what am I doing here at, at the moment? Can we not come back in summer when it's a bit more user-friendly? Yeah, so that, that was... Again, entertaining. We had days of, you know, sat in the cafe, we'd get in the water. Blokes are just absolutely just refused to soldier. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't feel my hands. I've got ice cream headache. You know, it's just not not working. Can we go for a burger or a, or a bacon bap and a coffee? <laughs> yeah. I was quite lucky. I had, um, I had Ratty, who took us, uh, took us where I was. As was only two weeks. Um, but yeah, we were lucky. We had it in the summer, so... We did a couple of decent things. Hill walking. The one thing that always got me was hill walking. Being a um, being qualified and taking people hill walking. And once you've done your junior command course and you've been to a few operational places where you've navigated around, and then you're getting told what you need to go to this. You know, yeah. you're doing like a four k nav and like that. Really, are you really taking raw marines out? to do this this yeah. is <laughs> yeah um yeah I, I suppose it's one of those things isn't it that you need qualifications to back up if, if anything did go yeah, wrong yeah. from um sort of civil court side of things or wherever it would fit into the process but yeah i i get i get you you know especially when you look at things like norway where we you, you live in the snow and you do whatever you you, you do but that qualification that you're talking about, you can't take anybody above the snow line or whatever it, you know, yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> Doesn't sort of make sense in, in a way for what we've been trained to do, but I, I get it. 
we all need quals to make sure that you suitably train, I suppose. Yeah, so you got to the end, so you did finish your six weeks and then you went back to the PT staff. Yeah, so went on to the PT staff for a bit and, and obviously taking um, brand new recruits into training. Um, so taking effectively civilians and then turning them into Royal Marines physically and, and adding into that sort of whole program to take them through that point. Um, took a couple of troops through, but I was only, I think, on the staff six or seven months and then I got drafted out to, to go to, to pool to help out down down there on the PT staff just running bits and pieces um, and then in 2004 I did my uh, specialised again within injury rehabilitation. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So the, um, the rehabilitation instructor course uh, is where that's run was it in London at the time was yeah it? so it was where uh, ran at Headley Court at the time that I did it and it's basically a, um, a six month real high high intensity sort of real compressed course it's almost like a a year's foundation degree compressed into six months and there's a, there's a lot to learn um, in terms of anatomy, physiology, how the body works, how injuries work, how healing times, all, all that sort of thing that goes with it and the exercise prescription that you would sort of um, help people with and how it all sort of ties together. And it, it was quite quite interesting. Um, again, struggled at times on that just because of the, the volume of um, learning that you've got to do and for somebody that's in their mid-twenties and you haven't been to school for 10 years, to be thrown back into that education like that, it's a bit of a, oh, right, uh, how, do I, how do I do yeah. this again? How do I use a pen again? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, a, like I say, a really interesting course. And I'm glad that I took that route. I think at the time it suited more of, more of my um, style of leadership and, and coaching rather than being a, a, a PTI where it's very much sort of point shouty sometimes um you, you more dictating what happens with the the rehab side of things you sort of move away from that completely and it's very coachy it's very um more of a softly softly approach that like you've got to work with somebody and really work out what's going on in the background as well as what's happening with the injury to to help them move forward because there can be so many things that can stop progression it's not necessarily injury it's life stuff it's stuff going on in the background it's stuff that sometimes need digging out of the weeds and that's not necessarily through me helping them it might be through a part of a bigger medical team that they're talking to the social workers or the welfare people or whoever it is to try and help them get over those mental health issues as well to, to tie it all in but uh, I love it you know I don't know many people that can say they get a real job satisfaction out of what they do within the the marines or the military i think a lot of people just do the job for what they do but this is one of those jobs i, I love i love getting out of bed i love seeing helping people progress and getting them to to a better place than where they were when they first came through the door yeah i mean i think that the, definitely the knowledge that you gain and i've t- talked about this before where you know you, you get given those like foundation um bits of knowledge and then the more that you do it the the you you start learning your own adaptive techniques don't you to to you know everybody's different everyone's mental capability and their their personality traits and stuff everyone's different so every time you have somebody come through your door they're going to be different you've got to approach them in a different way and you know 
being, coming from an, an instructor point of view, that is really interesting to me also because, you know, you're, you're not dealing with one particular situation or one particular element of anything and it all changes all the time. And I think if, you, if you're in a job where, you know, let's say for instance, a desk job where people hate it because they're coming into work, they're sitting behind the desk, they're on the computer between, I don't know, eight and five, what normal people normally work, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a real job, honestly. Yeah, a real job. Um, and then they go home and then they go in the next day and they do the same thing. I can see where like mental health issues would come into that. Whereas like, you know, the things that you're talking about there is, is, is very much, you know, you're helping people and you can see the progression from the time that they come through your door to when they exit and you go, actually, you're all right now. If yeah. you've got any problems, come back to me and, you know, we'll deal with that again. Yeah, and it's, you're almost life coaching them as well because yeah. we, we can see from some of the injuries or conditions that people come in with, they're not going to get back, but it's helping them understand that I, we, we need to get you to being able to function as a human being first. And that's just the simple things like walking up and down stairs, sitting un, unaided to go to the toilet up and, or into chairs and anything where you're not having to use other things. You know, the, the basic things in life, walking your dog, where, you know, whatever it is, <clears throat> we need to do that first and we need to do that well before we can then say, right, we're now going to turn you back into a Royal Marine, a soldier, a uh, wherever you're going to work within the military um <clears throat> and sometimes along that process the realization is yeah i'm not i'm not going to get back here so actually i need to switch fire to start thinking about how good do i need to be to go into the civilian world that i am going to work in um, and that environment so if they're still going to be active we'll sort of look at their program to keep them into that um, obviously if they're still coming back into service we'll tailor their program to go to that if they're going into quite a sedentary job because that's what their injuries allow we we sort of level it off to a, a point where it's tolerable for them because there's no point putting people through pain and discomfort just because we want to try and get them somewhere it's actually you know we need to make it work work for them and sometimes that's difficult for focused people and military people to do is take their military head off and put a different head on and go, yeah. yeah, I need to take a step back here and actually just just chill and accept. And acceptance is a big thing within within the, the rehab environment. If you don't accept where you are currently, don't keep looking back at what could I do? That's what I used to be able to do. I'm frustrated that I can't do it anymore. Well, you may never get back to that, but you need to accept that to be able to move forward. Yeah. And, and it's all these little pieces that we need to sort of put together as, as time goes through and you build that rapport with somebody and it's it, it can be challenging sometimes um, and it can be frustrating but a lot of the time it's people expect you to fix them and not realise that it's their it's their back it's their knee it's their it's their problem to fix we just guide them you know I can give you the best program in the world but if you're not going to do it it's it's no use to you yeah. so Ownership for, for these injuries and conditions is is a big part of what we need to, to do and accepting that process. Yeah, I think because when I, when I started to take recruits through in 2007, there was a thing that came in called Teach Coach Mentor. And I think what you're saying there, you know, as early back when you started your, your, your RIs course is that you were already 
kind of doing that anyway you were doing the teach coach mentor because because yeah. the the angle that you come in to approach those sort of problems you can't be very military indoctrinated or you know do this do that you have to be um adaptive to yeah. be able to deal with those situations where you know and i think the teach coach mentor um mentality that has now come in to take people through it and actually teach is probably the best way that people learn as well because you know you're not being shouted at you're not being screamed at like we probably were yeah yeah and uh, and you're not learning anything where you're going okay this is what i want you to do you can't do it this way so how am i going to change the way that i approach the teaching so you can learn it as well yeah. as a get through to everybody else that's in your class, you know. Yeah, and that, that was just, I mean, even back then, I, w- I wasn't afraid if how I was explaining something wasn't getting through to one of the young recruits or he was struggling, but I knew one of his friends could do it well. I'd say to his mate, mate, can you come and coach him? And just watch that they were doing the same thing, but try to see if it would work from that point of view. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, you know, it's all about you having to find the reasons why sometimes it'd be like right that's the problem how are you going to solve it and give that sort of ownership to them and like i say that that ownership of the program you then sort of mentoring them to to get through to how, how are you going to work out you know your knees need to go there so how are you going to get your knees to that point or whatever whatever the issue whatever the issue is um but i, I love it i think it's it's certainly something that i'd like to keep doing when i eventually leave the royal marines in that rehab side of things um, but who knows what the future may bring? Yeah. No. Have you looked? Have you looked into it? Like for for inevitably, you know, you are the same as me, where you kind of end your time. Have you looked into it? Maybe like you can go down that route. Or? Yeah. Well, I'm already sort of qualified in um, soft tissue, uh, and within that soft tissue, there's the the rehab element of it that I want to continue with. So they both come to together as sort of. Um, that clinical soft tissue massage stuff along with the exercise prescription to help develop that. Um, and hopefully that will be a, a relatively decent package to put together to offer. Yeah. Um, so that that's the what I'm working on at the, at the moment, whether it comes to that, you know, I might have been an electrician in a couple of years' time. So we'll see, but that's plan A at the minute. Okay, cool. Um, so you did your rehabilitation instructors course. You went back to, did you go back to 40 after that? No, I went to um, CTC initially okay. to work with obviously the injured recruits where most people come off their course. They go to um, the commando training center to sort of um, Im- start to implement those skills um, and get educated by the physios and other bits there. And it was really good. My first sort of 12, 18 months uh, back there, I learned a lot. Uh, we had some good physios and it, just helps develop you um, and then from there you would move on but it was at that time as well that um, I started getting into the sporting side of things and inquiring mm. about how do I get into the sport of bobsleigh just because it's one of those things I'd always watched uh, every four years at the Olympic Games like everybody else and it was I just wanted to tick it off bucket list and I knew that there, uh, there was an avenue through it into it through the military but it was just finding out how to get into that. Yeah. And, and obviously um, things progressed on quite quickly from, from that point. Yeah, how, how, so how did you find out about it? So, so I, I spoke to 
uh, the head of the physical training branch at the time, and I said, Look, "Do you know who is who's the avenue to to go, or who's the point of contact to get into the bobsleigh just mm-hmm. to have a go?" And put me in the right direction. Uh, I spoke to uh, Lee Johnston, who was a Royal Marine at the time, and he he was involved in the GB squad as well as the Royal Navy team. And he said to me, "Come and have a go at the GB setup." and just trial trial it out you never know uh, and, and I was a little bit hesitant to, to at first because for me I didn't think I had the ability to be an international athlete um, probably like yourself pretty quick around a football pitch or rugby pitch or whatever but I wasn't a, a you know a 10-0 sprinter or anything like that um, so I didn't expect myself to be any good at the sport but it just so happened that with minimal training, <laughs> I managed to scrape through the minimum standards that GB were looking for. Uh, so from that point, and that was in sort of middle of 2005. So I've got the date here. Oh, yeah. 28th of September 2005 is when you went and did the trials in Bath. Is that right? Yeah, it'll probably been around that, that point because they'll have started to um, do the team selections for later on the year because usually by sort of October, November, the teams are starting to go out on ice. Um, yeah, so at that point, I managed to sort of hit all the minimum targets. So, what, what were the um, what was sort of like the 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 lines the, the the points that you needed to hit to get selected for that? So at that at that particular moment in time in the selection process, you had to do uh, a power clean. Um, there was a thirty meter sprint. I think there might have been a forty five meter sprint as well, but there was definitely a thirty meter sprint. There was a jump. And there was a, a bobsleigh push on the, the, the dry bobsleigh track at um, Bath University where you, you, you sort of push a sled, jump in, and it fires you back up the hill um, so you can practice the start. Uh, so there was two levels. If you hit the sort of A standard, you could go on to the sort of full international squad. If you hit the B standard, you would go into the development squad. And that's where I sort of came into it as I managed to hit all the standards for the B level, which I think for the 30 metres was... 390 3.9 seconds um the standing long jump might have been over 275 um that's pretty good yeah um well so the, the bobsleigh push i actually pushed better um, um by a couple of tenths than what i needed to and then um the the, the power clean i think i was cleaning 115 120 at the time which is not great um in the bigger scheme of things but at that point when you're still learning it was it was enough. Well, for a guy that probably rocked up who had no previous training in that whatsoever, it's kind of what we do with bootlegs, isn't it? Is that we just rock up and go, yeah, let's let's just let's just cuff it. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was a little bit like because all, all my training before this point had been very much body weight running, the usual sort of raw marine training that we all do. It's you know weight wasn't a big thing back in the early sort of two thousands. Uh, and sort of before the, the the CrossFit craze came in and everybody went gym gym crazy, um, but back then, so for for me, I think I made real big gains in my initial sort of introduction to the sport because I actually started lifting weights and and squatting. Um, and I remember the first time that I got under a squat bar to do a one rep max, and I I squatted about 180 kilos, which again is not bad considering. Uh, I mean. Don't don't get me wrong. I nearly folded myself in half trying to <laughs> trying to do it. <laughs> um, but at, 
later on after I, I did like a five week program, uh, six week program, whatever it was, of just really trying to focus on squats, it improved by um, 70 kilos. So I went up to 250 oh, wow. yeah, yeah. in that time. So it was big, big progressions, which then probably showed that my body type suited the sport uh, or the sport suited my body type, whichever one you think. Because uh, again, being quite fast twitch, I, you know, I just had to look at weights to get strong, really. Um, it was quite well suited, but it all happened by luck. When I look back at it and what I've achieved, uh, wow, I just stumbled across that by accident and there you go. If you, if you believe in that sort of thing, fate, right place, right time. Yeah. You're just in the yeah. right place, little, right time. Little bit of luck. Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, you've got to make your own luck. Uh, and I think the, those decisions at, at the time where I'd made a chance to go into the sport, the guy that I'd, when I got selected, the guy that I was meant to be pushing got injured. So he was having a season out. So I, I just sort of looked at it and went, well, how do I keep in the sport? I've been selected for Great Britain with nowhere to go. So I looked at the the Navy again, there was a couple of driving camps that the military do. So I went out to Calgary for a week, did a little bit of driving, come back, went out to Austria for a week, did a little bit of driving, and then got selected for Great Britain as a driver, development driver, um, in, I think it would have been January 06, uh, or early January 06, just as the guys were getting selected to go into the Olympic Games in, in the February, I got picked up as the development driver, did a couple of races that, that season, and then, started to train properly for it in that 2006-2007. What made you kind of aim or focus your goal towards being a driver? Was it just something that naturally went that way? Because you're the driver in the four-man bob. That's right, yeah? Yeah. So, you know, there's three other people behind you. Kind of what what turned your head and you aimed towards that? I think a little, a little bit was um, within the, the sport... I was quite aware early on that it's almost as a driver because there's only one only one person that can drive the sled really because the other guys don't have the skill set and it takes a long time you know to make a a world world class driver they reckon it takes about eight years so once you start getting into that you you can't you can't just take that person out and throw somebody else in and expect it to be at, at the same standard. Um, so I learned very early on that possibly going into the driving side of things was um, the better option. But I I had a natural knack for it. It's not like I didn't know what I was doing. <clears throat> I understood the principles of driving from quite early on. So that helped. Um, I showed an aptitude for it, which is why I got selected um, to represent at that level. And then the realization that as a brakeman, if somebody quicker comes along, you're off the sled. You know, and that's the harsh reality of any sport, yeah. you know, football. And, you know, one week you're on the bench, one week you're on the, you know, and it just is, it is what it is. So it was making that relatively smart decision to go, if I get good at this, I'm not really going to get kicked out, if that makes sense, because nobody can take my spot unless they're better than me as a driver. Um, so it's trying to work out your options of how to get to an Olympic Games. So did you come back from there and you bought the fastest car possible and you were driving around Mac 10 just to try and get your uh, reaction time a little bit better? No, it was, I think a lot of mine was very much focused on how to improve physically, you know, do, uh, trying to train properly more sprint-based. Um, and I did that during the summer months around still working within the rehab environment. So you're in the gym early before work, you know, 
six, half six in the morning. You're then in the gym after work and, and, and didn't really let it interfere with my working life so it didn't affect the patient's care. Did you work on any of your reaction stuff? Because obviously being the driver and going those speeds, you know, um, down, down the courses, if you're even half a second out on some of those turns, you're upside down, aren't you? Yeah. Um, it, it's difficult because it's not like you can, let's say if you're a, a, a car driver, you can get video games where you can sort of still keep an eye on the track, but it's not it's not the same. But for, for bobsleigh, it's not. The, the only time that you get to go on the track is in the winter. You can't go yeah. in the summer. Um, so it, it's difficult to keep that that spatial awareness up and it's I think it, it's just one of those things you've either got the right mentality for it and the right feel for it or you or you haven't um, some people want to drive other people are just no I'm happy sat in the back doing whatever I need to do on the way down push for five seconds get in all done um, yeah. and people are happy with that um, I preferred to see where I was going rather than just looking at you know, my, my ball's basically in the bottom of the sled as you've got your head down um, and that's that's it. It's not, I just preferred it. But initially, I did drive and push foreman and that's, I did that for my first couple of seasons then made the decision in 2008 to just be a driver only. Oh, cool. So you do, uh, you were in the B squad, you were in the developmental side of that sort of thing and then, you know, when did you move up into, you know, the international side of it? So the international side as a push athlete was in 2007 um, and I uh, I did a couple of races. I drove up until the Christmas, so Christmas 2006, <clears throat> went to the team selections and then decided from that point that I was only going to push because I wanted to go to the World Championships in the February. Um, so I was more focused on being a four-man crewman than, than, than anything else. Um, to get that major championships under my belt. So at that point, that's when I made my senior sort of debut. Uh, and I think we were in Italy in Cortina somewhere, which we actually crashed in. Um, I watched that last night. Yeah, there's um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, you might find a lot of videos on me in, in YouTube of actually being upside down rather than. <laughs> and I, I, do, I do still get a little bit of um, jip from the lads at work saying, obviously, uh, oh, you were the, uh, the the driver with the upside down uh, Olympic bobsleigh team, weren't you? Yeah, like, cool runnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, was, that, that guy upside down. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that that was me. That happened quite a lot. Um, but my first international as a driver was in the I think it might have been in the February of two uh, thousand seven, and that was in Königsee in Germany, which is the same track that I actually finished my international career on. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Which which was good, but I'd time, I'd thought about it and I timed that time that to walk away from the sport at that point when I did. Yeah, how did you find going from the, the military environment and then you know you being in the British team and um, you know what 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 did you find? It must have been a little bit more relaxed, you know, because you you're used to this very formal military lifestyle, and then you know you go over and you're doing a sport that you enjoy, you love, and you're really good at. You know, and people acknowledge that you're good at too. But then you get put into another environment, taken out of it. You're still serving, mm. but you get put into another environment as well. It's. I think there are a lot of similarities, certainly from the 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 mental preparation side of things and how you put yourself forward and how you do things. You know that 
everything that we've been through as a, a Royal Marine and how he developed you to that point certainly helped me with that putting all those processes in place and getting into the, the training thing but it was that mentality of work hard relax when I need to work hard at, at every little area that I needed to work on that's where I started to, to develop it um, and it, it came more apparent after my first Olympic Games when we started doing stuff leading into my second the mental preparation stuff that we changed into working with psychologists showed that everything I'd learned to that point in the Marines it actually really helped me and there was only a couple of minor tweaks that we had to, to make um, well it's going to though isn't it? that mindset at the end of the day you know when you're in the military or especially the Royal Marines commandos is that yes you are a team but you are an individual as well if you can't if you can't do the certain physical aspects of it you're going to let everybody else down as well so that's when you know your your mindset becomes you, you need that mindset to be able to, you know what, I'm tired, I'm hungry, but I'm still carrying on anyway. Because eventually when we get to where we're going, you know, I'm going to be able to rest and eat and stuff like that. You're going to have that, you know, I must carry on mentality all the time, really. Yeah, uh, and that, that, definitely, that definitely helps. But I think I've always had a little bit of a different approach to some other people. Some people are still quite happy to... When, when they're out on the season, go out and maybe have a beer or they'd still be chasing other things or they didn't quite fully commit to everything. And I fully committed to everything. I'd be quite happy to spend hours in the garage tinkering with my sled to make sure that it was the best it could be. I'd spend the nights in when the lads went out. I'd be still looking at the courses, reviewing my notes, going through things and, and fully submerge myself into that elite sport lifestyle which it, it is it's not it's not a sport it becomes your life and that's you've got to treat it like that that is your job that is your only purpose my only purpose when I started it and I got laughed at by one of the coaches when he asked me what did what did I want to achieve when I came into the sport I said I wanted to win an Olympic medal and he just laughed and said good luck <laughs> and I was like brilliant um so <laughs> yeah maybe and that mentality of the sport changed just different personalities moved in and out um and like I say, I think by the time we came into 2014, it was very much the right people at the right time in the right place, a little bit of luck, a little bit of everything, just sort of all the moon and stars just aligned at that particular point for it to to give us the best chance. Let's, let's go back a little bit. So you went to Vancouver in 2010 for the Winter Olympics. Uh, you know, what... What did that feel like when you, because you, you started in 2005 and you're saying to become a good driver, realistically, not a normal person would take up to you know, six to eight years to become that. You've gone from going to a selection period in Bath to being in the Olympics in five years. Yeah. That is a massive achievement if you look at it in any way. Yeah, and there, there was going into Vancouver, there was a little bit of controversy about... Um, my, my selection and the way that it was done in terms of where the way that the selection process was written and what we had to do was hit certain targets physically and the best the way that they'd written it was the best driver physically would get the best team um, so the best sort of four or five athletes to go with it and at that time I absolutely smashed every other driver out of the park I was physically in the best shape bobsleigh wise I've ever been in um, and 
when the teams got selected, because we weren't a funded sporter then and people were self-funded, they started people started pulling strings in the background and well, I'll pay for you to come with me. So the four best athletes didn't up, end up going together until the Olympic Games when we were brought back together. Now, my selection was I'd done this, done that, and there was two of us. Um, Lee was a more experienced driver. I was up and coming, but our paths were sort of crossing at the same point. You know, each week we were beating each other by hundredths of a second. So the level of where we were going to finish at an, an Olympic Games was about the same, you know, give or take a couple of spaces here and there. So I got selected and then we went through a whole um, appeal process prior to 2010 to to try and uh, fight against my selection, which was an absolute miserable experience. I can imagine that these people being negative, <clears throat> a lot of negativity going towards you there. Yeah, and, and, and there was, but the, the British... The British team, they obviously stood by their selection, but it was just the fact that when, you, <clears throat> when you're in that environment and it's a horrible environment to, to be in, that you're like, oh, I'm not enjoying this anymore. This is, it actually made me want to walk away from the sport, um, <clears throat> but luckily uh, I didn't. So 2010, yeah, and you're right, it was quite a, a snapshot from going in and having my first run on ice at the back end of 2005 to competing in my first Olympic Games in in 2010 um but i was just happy to be there i wasn't no expectations it was all about absorbing the experience but when i first got to vancouver i was very much like well what what's this whole olympic thing all about you know what is it <clears throat> there wasn't really other than olympic rings plastered everywhere i was like well what's happening but the the realization of what you're there for was when we were in the um the opening ceremony and obviously, <clears throat> as the opening ceremony is, they do the little bit of display stuff beforehand and then each nation starts to come out in alphabetical order. And when it got to Germany, or I think in front of, in front of us, um, obviously you watch them walk walk out and then next you hear, and next is, is Great Britain. And you walk through this little tunnel into this massive stadium and you hear the noise and the roar and everything and you, the, the hair stand up on the back of your neck and you're like, yeah, this is what it's, this is what the Olympics is about. This is what not representing Great Britain about. This is what representing Team GB is about. And as, and it was quite bizarre. And I, mem- and I remember it and I can see it vividly in my head as we were speaking. As you walk out of that little tunnel, you look around into this vast crowd where there's loads of nations, loads of flags wearing, uh, uh, sort of waving. But it was the union flags, the, the, that sort of red, white and blue just pinged out so bright and you could see everywhere where all of your support was around and it it was quite an amazing experience that 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 this is what it's all about this is what i've worked so hard for for the last five years to get to this point yeah i mean that's that's going to be the pinnacle really you know to, to, to that point anyway you know and you know was that really I guess, like you said, back that was your focus anyway. Like you wanted to go to the Olympics and you wanted to get an Olympic medal. So it must have been quite a humbling experience almost, like where you're like that and you, you, that realisation that you're like, oh shit, I'm actually here. Yeah, yeah. And it was a little bit a little bit like that, that, you know, you, you can get absorbed into the whole Olympic thing because it's a, it's basically the world's biggest sports day and 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 it's a massive event and all the workings go on behind it are, are amazing the amount of people involved but then when you get to it 
it's no different than what you do any other day. When you get to the track, it's still the same athletes you're competing against. It's still the same coaches. It's still the same. It's just under a different umbrella. Um, yeah. And that's where you just need to be ground yourself again and think, I've, this is the same stuff that we do day in, day out. <clears throat> but Vancouver was a tough track. It's the fastest track in the world. You know, the, the, the sleds are reaching 95 miles an hour on that track and it's quick. And at that time, it hadn't been built that long. So there was still a couple of fine tuning bits to work on from the track itself and they've amended them since. But for an Olympic Games to have 13 crashes across all of the, the disciplines in, in the bobsleigh, men's, women's and, and the foreman as well, um, never been heard of before. There was lots of crashes and it wasn't just novices, relatively novices like, like myself. There were world champions, there were Olympic medalists, there were multiple World Cup medalists that got caught out by this 11, 12, 13 section of the, of the course. And it was causing mayhem. Absolutely. Potential medal winners that were guaranteed went over. But surely that's kind of, kind of the point of it really, isn't it? It's like, would you really want to be a medalist in an easy track? Where, or would you want something that's challenging that you've got the world's best there and they're flying down this with really technical, you know, re really difficult turns to go into where even, even the world's best can make mistakes. And if you do well and you're on, on your ball, on your game that day, you know, you could be, you could be the winner that day. And, you know, you could argue for and against that, couldn't you really? Yeah. And it, but it's, it's one of those sports that, you know, when you look at Formula One or MotoGP or any sort of motorsport, you still see Lewis Hamilton as the best driver in the world. He'll go into a corner, he might still lock up or he might take a wider line and just miss, by that split second, he's missed his breaking point or his turning point. But the difference is, most of the time, they can still slow down and, and, and get back on line for yeah. the next corner. A lot of the time when we make a mistake, we haven't got that option because we've got no brakes, we're on sheet ice, you know, we're running on small sort of little blades that we call runners. Um, so most of the time when you hit something in the wrong place, you're going over and that's it. And it's that realisation that, oh God, here, here we go. Sometimes you can see it coming, sometimes you can't and you just get caught sort of blindsided. How many test runs did you have before you um, went down trial runs? So the Canadians had hundreds. Obviously it was their home track. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, home track advantage, great. Uh, I think we got, in total, they had 40, maybe 40 plus. I got half of that because I wasn't allowed to go to the first initial um, training because uh, I was GB didn't qualify two sleds at that time, so we were only out to take one, Okay. which Lee, Lee did, so I missed half the amount of runs. So again, you're always playing catch-up. Um, and ultimately, I think that's that's why you know I had two crashes, one in the in the two man and one in the four man. So as a whole, the results weren't great. We got DQ'd out of the two man um, because Dan the brakeman got pulled out because we were going so quick he just couldn't keep hold. He got dragged out the sled, um, you know, and we crashed at the, the the sort of fastest point and he got pulled out to probably doing eighty five mile an hour. Um, and then in the four man, we we crashed on the second day. Uh, on, on the first day sort of in the second run uh, we managed to repair the sleds and we went out on the second day and, and managed to finish the race but we finished 17th with a crash um, but that was the same result that they got in 2006 without a crash so you know it, it showed potential um, and that potential came right four years later yeah 
So after the uh, 2010 Olympics, what, what happened after that? So after 2010, obviously I, you know, originally in, I think in 2008, 2009, whenever it was, I turned down promotion because when I looked at how the courses were going to be at work, they sat, they, they would have interfered with my preparation for that. So I turned down promotion in 2000, I think it would have been 2008 at some point, um, which then obviously you get that two years deferred. So in 2010, when I came back from the Olympics, um, obviously fully anaerobic trained up strength fast twitch short burst <laughs> six second specialist that was it yeah and then uh, by the time i came back in april uh, or whenever it was that i got a, like a six week notice to go you're on your your pt1s course in in whenever it started and i was thinking to myself oh my god right i've now got to completely change all my training to go back to endurance base and i basically did what we were going to get tested on so rope climbs press-ups, sit-ups, bleep tests. And I put that into a little bit of a circuit and doing all the, like, the camp circuits, the 800-metre loop that we do on camp. And I, that's how I turned my fears into it. My God, it was absolutely miserable. My body did not like it, but I eventually just about scraped through my PT1's course um, to, to do that. And it was, it was hard graft. But as soon as that finished... I switched back to bobsleigh training, bumped back into the next season, come back the following year, um, sort of 2011, did my senior command course, which again is completely different type of training. You're doing all your soldiering, you're there, yep. you're there. But then from that point, once I'd done my um, senior command course in 2012, I got selected for full-time um, training or as a full-time athlete within the Royal Navy system. So that was my job. For, for four years, from 2004, uh, 2012 to 2016, I was a full-time athlete. Um, that must have been a good feeling, you know, when, when you got that. Yeah, it, it was, because my progression really sort of um, moved forward. Yeah. And physically allowed me to, to, to not train any harder, but to rest harder and recover harder. And that was the big key that I was, that I was missing. It was the, the recovery. Um, and it went well for a year. And then 2013, it went wrong a little bit. A bit pear-shaped. In, in, in what way? Well, I, um, so we'd had a real good season in 2012, 2013. We'd hit the funding markers. We'd, we'd got national lottery funding, which the, so the sport hadn't had since, you know, 98. So we'd, we'd come out of that funding, that vicious funding circle of you need results to get funding but you need funding to get results and we'd managed to get the result that triggered the funding and it just our, our trajectory just went skywards from that point but from finishing fifth in the world championships in 2013 um, in the sort of February of 2013 to in the summer in July of 2013 rupturing my Achilles um, complete rupture while we we're doing some plyos seven months prior to an Olympic Games was a, a minor setback as I put it, other people were flapping because I had to go to A&E. Obviously, I had to have surgery to get it repaired. Nobody thought I could recover to get back into it. And it, I remember when I first did it and I, and I jumped over the hurdle and as I landed to sprint off the 10 metres or 15 metres, whatever it is we were doing off the last hurdle, it felt like the hurdle had hit me on the back of the leg. And I was like, well, I think I've cleared that, but why is it hit me? So anyway, as I landed, I, I sprinted off and I felt that bang uh, on the back of my leg. 
um, took another two or three paces, and each each time I put my right foot down, I was like, ah, that 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 hurts a little bit. So I eventually slowed down, and I was like, why is why is the hurdle around my leg? Because I couldn't work it out initially what what was going on. And then when I looked down at my feet, I was like, well, there's no hurdle. And I looked back, and the hurdle still stood upright, and all of then my rehab sort of training knowledge just went you've ruptured your Achilles and I was like right okay I need to sit down here and the lads are like are you all right and I was like no I've just ruptured my Achilles they're like no 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 it's probably just a tweak and anyway the physio they were straight on the phone to the physio the physio was like right kneel down squeeze your calf is it moving and I was uh, the coach was like no it's not moving that's good and I was like no it's not because that's one of the tests that you do if you squeeze the calf and there's no movement of the foot it means that yeah. your, your Achilles is is gone um, so yeah, bit of a flap, and it, I was sat on the on the track floor where we were we were watching. I was quite calm and just taking it all, all in and trying to just work out in my head at that point how I was going to get back um, to the games in, in you know in in seven months. And I thought it's achievable. I can do this, not a problem. I I understand the process of rehab, healing time, da 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 da. But it's going to be tight. I've got one chance at getting this right. Um, and all the time, the coaches, other athletes were all flapping around at 36,000 feet because they were like, right, our chance of getting to Olympic Games is gone. Da, da, da. And that's how important I was to the program at, at the time. But it was quite quite a surreal, almost out-of-body experience to just sort of sit and actually be the calmest person in the room when I was the one that was, was injured at, at, the, at the time. We had your rehab head on, so you probably realised, okay, I've got... I've got a rupture here, but you know, I, I would probably suggest that you've seen ruptured Achilles before. So you kind of knew the timeline or the time frame you can you've got between resting, healing to getting back to doing what you were doing before. Yeah. It was it was a little bit like that. And you, you hear of the odd anomaly that could that had been back in like six six to seven months, six to eight months, and I was like, I can do that. I'm just hoping that I'm one of them anomalies. But what helped me out is the the doctor who was at um, Team Bath at the, at the time as part of their sort of English Institute of Sport. He'd been to a seminar about a month prior to this of this um, professor up in Glasgow who's doing this brand new type of surgical repair. And he's shown it on, a, on an Achilles. And basically he was saying that anybody who has this repair will be back to full training in 16 weeks. Nobody knew if it would work. I was the first person in the world to have it on their Achilles. So we it was a case of, do I have a normal repair in Bath that day or the next day, whenever it would be, and my chance of being to an Olympic Games is basically gone? Or do I have this new procedure and it opens the door to get to an Olympic Games? Well, to me, it was a no-brainer. Now, the issue was I was a bit of a guinea pig. They knew that it would get me to the 16-week point, but beyond that, they had no idea how it would recover, how it blah, 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 blah. So um, luckily it's worked and it worked at the time. It allowed me to get from on the, I think it was the 24th of July in 2013, I had the op and we competed. Our last day was the 23rd of February in um, 2014. So it was literally seven months to get to it. But I wasn't qualified for the games at that point. I still had to train. I still had to get qualified and, and, and still push on. And it was, at times, miserable. It was painful. It was excruciating to go down in a sled 
and not so much the pushing side of things once we got to that that point of developing um, the, the strength back in the cars but the g-force of going down the sled because where you would sit you'd have your feet up like this against like a, a little block that's in there but what was happening is the g-force would start to force my foot underneath it and put pressure on the achilles so you're, like, you're stretching basically yeah basically a, a very intense stretch so by the time i'd get down the, the bottom pulling you know five six g's in these corners and it just going i'd get out the sled hobbling and but it'd soon go away but that was the process that every time you and this was the thing that how about the, the whole mental preparation thing is when you're trying to block that out, knowing that you've still got to turn a sled in here, you've still got to have a sled in certain positions to create speed, to create um, pressure, to push you out and accelerate the sled, all the time while your Achilles is absolutely screaming at you and it's telling you to stop. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it took quite a bit of getting used to, but we still had some of our best results while, while we did that. And it was, um, when I look back, if it had happened a year before, maybe we wouldn't have had the results that we did, but it would have allowed me a longer time to progress. I think we just had to go for it. And the amount of times I stood on a sled, knowing that we were just about to smash it off at Mach 10, thinking this this could go at any point. What what do I do if it does? If I'm mid-flow going Mach, you know, Mach sprinting, what happens if this blows on me right now? And it was one of those things where I just said, just crack on. Just go. If it happens, I can't control that. Just I'll get in the sled somehow and work out what I need to do from from that point. Isn't I think that was one good thing of the training that we've had in in the the core and that mental preparation is sometimes it's just I really don't want to do this, but I've got to go. And and you just crack on and smash through it and and I suppose just blank stuff out sometimes and 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 push on. So I think that got me got me through it. But there was definitely some mental I was angry at myself at times why, why has this happened to me now we're, we're having the best season of our life we'll get great results physical performance is up where it needs to be and bang why has this happened you know those sort of questions I think when you look at some of the like the greatest sporting achievements by people they're done under um, what's the word they're done under duress mm. Like they're either like you coming back from an injury or they've got a personal problem, that, that, whether it's like a death in the family that's affected them greatly. And they've had to, they've had to have some form of um, mental capability to, to overcome that. But also what I think it also does show as well is that especially the time framework from where you ruptured your Achilles to, you know, competing in the Olympics, it shows how versatile and robust the body actually is that you can push yourself through those pain barriers, which we know about like doing certain things within the core, which obviously helped you. You know, it shows how, how robust we actually are as, you know, as a physique, whether you like your Joe Average or you like you're, a, you're an Olympian as well, like, you know. Yeah, so the, the, the body is an amazing thing and it can work in, in wonderful ways. But I think, you know, from my experience in the rehab environment, people don't tap into the... the the most important element of any sort of program or rehab. It's not necessarily the physical components of of the muscle tissue or whatever it is. It's the most important part in any rehab program is what's in between your ears. It's your brain because that that is your driving force. You don't want to get better and want to be lazy and sit on your, you know sit on the couch and do nothing. You won't get better. If you want to get better, majority of times you will. 
Um, not saying that happens to everybody. Obviously, people will still have limitations depending on what's happening, how severe, but that doesn't stop them driving forward to be uh, to progress on. They may never walk again, but that doesn't stop them wanting to, to try. So it's accepting it and really trying to push on or you just accept it and go, this is me and I'm just going to, you know, peter off into a, a, a sort of pit of doom and despair. Okay, so you, you've you've rehabilitated your your Achilles and you've you've requalified. Um, talk talk to me about you know h- how you went into the two thousand and fourteen Olympics in Sochi. So, you know what was the mentality, your team, you know what what was the driving force taking you forward into that? So I think that <clears throat> the main driving force f- for me was um, building in into that was when I was in the car on the way to A&E for, for my Achilles. And obviously we got that confirmed by the doc in the A&E. He's like, yeah, you've definitely rubbed your Achilles. And like, well, now you've just squeezed my calf again and my foot hasn't moved. I could have told you that when I first um, came in. <laughs> um, <clears throat> was I, I said to them, um, I said, lads, we, we'll stand on the Olympic start line together. So we might not be going there to compete. It might just be able to take part, but we'll stand on that Olympic start line together. And once we're there, anything can happen but I made that promise to them and that was a big driving force for me is I can't let my team down they they need me as much as I need them and we'd had such a journey to fight from not being funded to get into funding to progress it from being so in 2011 I finished 23rd in the world 2012 we finished 10th 2013 we finished 5th and then obviously 2014 progressed on but the mentality was in 2010 we went to the opening ceremony, you know, and this was a different team. I was the only member from 2010 to go to 2014, but we went to the opening ceremony. We went through this. We, we, we got involved within the, the Olympic village for however long, uh, the two weeks, two and a bit weeks. But we decided in Sochi that we weren't going into the Olympic village because we, we were only competing in the four-man event, not the two-man. So we didn't want to go into the Olympic village, athletes village, for too long because you can get a little bit stir crazy in there, a little bit boxing. So we wanted to stay out for as long as possible and focus on our job, which was pushing, um, sliding, preparing physically the best that we could and, and obviously mentally uh, and go into the games mentally fresh, not sort of starting to get um, a little bit sort of boxed in by it all. Um, and that was it. So we stayed out for a week. And, and when we came in to the Olympic Village, uh, and joined Team GB in that second week, you could tell everybody's mindset changed. Not not from us, but the way everybody started. They knew that we'd arrived for business. Not not asking around like some of the other guys were that were there and just not taking it as seriously, just there to get some more T-shirts and other bits and pieces. We, we were there for business and everybody's attitude changed slightly. Uh, but that's how we were focused as a team. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see where taking yourself away and focusing on yourself really and, you know, and the other three guys that are with you in the coaching staff, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely a pro in that, isn't there? Like you say, you, you know, I mean, how old were you then? You must have been what? So I think I was 36, was I 38? 
2000. So, yeah, probably uh, 30, 36, 37. So the maturity that you, you will have had compared to some of the other guys, I mean, I'm just stereotyping here and ageizing, is that even a word? The majority of the people that probably would have stayed in the Olympic Village would have been, you know, in their 20s and stuff. So they would have been like, I'm here to the Olympics, could win a medal, but I want to make the most of this experience as well. Whereas like you would have already been there before yeah, and gone, well, if we don't focus and buckle down, separate ourselves from everybody else, then there's a good chance that we probably won't make it to where we did. So, you know, having, having that little separation and segregation, you know, I, I can see that a mile away, you know, and what people would probably think when you just turn up a week into it. Yeah, these, these guys are, you know, they're here to do business, like, you know. Yeah, we, we were there focused for one job, and that was to try and, obviously, we, we knew we were medal contenders. We weren't guaranteed one, um, but we were certainly in, the, the, in that sort of top six, top five bracket to, to win a medal. Um, but it was, the, the whole process was focused around one, one thing, and that was being the best that we could be. Uh, and we we spoke about this just before we started going into the race because because <clears throat> we'd missed that first week. Obviously, everybody else had had more training runs and because they competed in the two man, so they'd done the six or eight training runs, whatever it would have been, uh, and then they'd have raced. So they probably had another ten runs under the belt just to familiarise itself to the track. And obviously, we went in missing all that, so we got six runs prior to the race, and then you go into the race, which is normal. Um, was the Sochi track uh, like a new built one, like it was in um, in Vancouver, or did you uh, did you been on it before? Yeah, we've been on it before. So we got, um, I think in total, I had again 40, 40 odd runs on it, um, racing on it previously, and all the sort of pre Olympic training that that we went in. So I knew the track relatively well. I knew it suited our kit. I knew it suited my driving style. So there was no issues of going there thinking, well, we're going to have to fight this because I I knew the track. Well, I knew it inside out and how to get us down the mountain fa as fast as we could with the equipment that we had. We just had to put that all together um, at the time. Okay. So you rocked up, you know, a week into it. You know, ex explain what the build-up was like. You know, you've got all this focus while, you you know, you, uh, you're going in to compete. And the, the day that you come up to compete, you know, just explain a little bit, you know, what that was like. So we were just... We stayed away in Germany and, and we were doing all the physical training, uh, the sprinting, just, just the fine-tuned little bits and pieces. Ultimately, we weren't going to change much at that time, but it was more about just finalising those those little 1% here and there. Um, and we were still working with the the sort of team psychologist at that, at that time, again, just fine-tuning and just building into that, that process. But we, we'd... But taking our team down, so we had a, a bigger coaching. You, know, you had the the other sort of the second team, a bigger sort of pool of coaching staff, and we really narrowed our team down to the people that we thought were focused on winning, and and that was our head coach, our performance director, the physio, and our um, uh, who else was there? Our um, sprints coach. So there was there's about four or five staff around us that we only trusted them, and it was a case of we will, as a team of four and a coaching staff of five, we will win win a medal. That that was it. Everybody else, just we, we, we didn't want to get too involved in. Not, not, not that we were being elitist, 
but success breeds success. And we, we were building success in this and that I believed everybody within this group had the right mindset to win. Um, I didn't think other people did. That's why we sort of closed them out of that sort of loop a little bit. Um, but when you come into elite sport, elite sport only cares on one thing and that is results. It doesn't care about emotions, about how you feel, about what, what it is. It only cares about one thing and that is winning or losing. And that's, that's it. So to, to go into that games, the last little bit, and I, th I think this is where what really helped me is when we, when I was doing some stuff with a, the team psychologist was it was that realization that, because when I was in Sochi, uh, I knew my parents were there, they were, they were watching. Um, obviously my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, Paula, she was competing in the women's side of things. So, and I, and I had my teammates, which were all really good friends and the coaching staff. So really the, the realization of when you're there that you're surrounded by the people that you love and care for and that they love and care for you and everybody's there for your, your wellbeing. And, and it, it's just that nice vibe. The realization that you would rather be nowhere else on the planet at this particular point point in time with the people that you're with at the moment and once you get that mindset and it sort of sits in and, and it sinks in it's it's quite a, a, an amazing thing to look back on and go yeah I get I get where you're at because the, the, the psychologist asked me where why are you so fast why are you fast in a sled and uh, when she asked me this at the beginning uh, earlier on in the season I, I came to the, uh, the idea that I was just having a bit of fun with lads. Um, I, I was happy. Um, I was enjoying myself. And then she asked me again at the Olympics, so why are you so fast? And it came down to, I was just in the right mental state. I was just happy. And, and when it came to the performance, I wasn't, it wasn't about chasing times. It wasn't about fo being focused on what the Germans, the US, the Russians were doing. It was just being focused against me and the track. And actually, I was in that mental that, that mental zone where I was just having fun with my mates and that's what made us as quick obviously we all worked hard for each other and we all give 100% for each other but when I look back at that it, it's a, a strong and, and almost a nice place to be in and a, and a beautiful place to be in mentally but also a powerful place for an athlete to be in when you look at that mental state to go yeah this, this is it this is beautiful I've got no other cares in the world about what I've got to do in bend one, two, three to, to 14, 15. And that's it. If you, if you think from the point of where you started to, to where you got to, you'd almost say that this is the pinnacle, this is the peak of what you've been working towards. You know, and, when, uh, uh, and mentally, subconsciously, I guess when you got to that point where you knew you were happy, is that you also you're happy in your, your environment, your family, but you're also happy with how you built yourself up physically, and the and the team build was there to go. Do you know what? We're gonna smash this. And I think if you have that mentality, go into any sort of racing sport or any competitive sport, whether it's you know Sunday league all the way up to elite level, like you're talking about you're going to be top of the game and you're going to be putting those performances in, in that, that you're going to be happy with whereas opposed to, you know, you're kind of forcing it a little bit, your mindset somewhere else. It's going to be more of a struggle for somebody doing that as to where you were mentally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think as well it helped 
I, I knew this was going to be my last Olympics, uh, realistically. Um, so it, it was just about taking it all in and enjoying it. And because I knew if I, again, with all within that mental sort of process and build up, if I did that, mm-hmm. I know I'd be quick because I knew I wouldn't have to force the speed in the sled or try and find speed. It, it just naturally came. Um, and that was sort of the, the biggest point of going into that. It wasn't about physically being any better than what we could have been the, the two weeks before because the adaptions just wouldn't have been that, if any, would have been that that great. But the mental preparation was was key for me and, and eventually sort of getting hold of that Olympic medal. Talk about... Um explain what it's like you know at the top of that run so you know you, you you're at, you're at the top you, you you're ready to go and you're going to go down that run you know what was you must have had a couple of runs before that before yeah you so we yeah we'd we'd have the six training runs so you get you get the six you get sort of two each day so it'll have been monday tuesday wednesday we'll have got to we might have the day off thursday and then friday saturday race or saturday sunday race whatever, whatever it is but that's how it sort of it, it worked out um yeah, it was quite. The, all the training runs went well, apart from one. Um, we were quick on all of them, but there was because of how warm it was in Sochi. It was about 18, 19 degrees. You know, it was it was warmer in Sochi as a, a Winter Olympics than what it was in two thousand and twelve for the the hundred meter final. You know, and when you think about that, it's it's quite. Um, interesting how they managed to keep all the the snow and the and the the ice on on the track and sometimes because of the way that they were having to keep the ice on the the track temperatures it would cause its own little sort of mini climate within the track so so you'd come out of a corner and you'd be looking down the straight into the next corner and it'd be all foggy so you couldn't actually sit and obviously when you've got a white background with white fog your depth perception just isn't there so it it not freaked me out a little bit, but I was like, if this happens in the race, the medal's gone. And at that point, I only we got brand new helmets and I only had a clear visor. So I spoke to my coach, who was, who's been in the sport a long time and had lots of friends. I was like, we need a dark visor. You need to get me a dark visor. Do you know anybody who could... And he went and speak to the spoke to the Germans. And the Germans were like, yeah, we'll, we'll give them a dark visor. There you go, you can have it. We beat all the Germans. So, so do you know what I mean? It's one of those things that there was a little bit of sportsmanships within. Thing. Obviously, they, they, they were probably expecting to be it as not, uh, but that dark visor made sure that I could see and and not be worried about these little foggy patches that were in the track, and kept everything nice and smooth. Yeah. So after that run, you were well. This is kind of where a little bit of controversy sits, isn't it? Really. So you you finished you finished the Olympic Games or the the, the event. You finished fifth, right? Yeah. And then you, uh, there were, there were, let me get this right. So there were two Russian teams in front of you, wasn't there? Yeah. And you were 0.11 seconds behind the, was it the third place? Yeah. So behind the, the, the US, we were 1100 of a second, which is, you know, it's not even a blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, so we only narrowly just missed out. And a lot of that was to do with our preparation because of the way things we were, and we were testing different athletes and sleds, our ranking wasn't as high as what it should be. And you can see that from our first run, that when you look at it, the time is just dropping away, dropping away, dropping away. The run isn't bad at all, but there's just no speed in the track because we set off 12th at, at the time. Um, but obviously, as we then got close to the front, our last run was actually the fastest run of that 
particular one. So we were constantly so our next three runs were third, were, were second, third, and first. So we were in that ballpark. It was just the first one that let, yeah. let us down. But we always knew that. Um, but yeah, the, the the two Russians in front of us they finished first and fourth, and then they got implemented, sort of um, not implemented. They they were all involved within this. Um, massive state-sponsored doping thing that came out uh, in sort of 2016 with the whole McLaren report and everything uh, like that. So, But at the time, when I look back, there was a couple of things that now that we know that the bigger picture sort of sit into place with how things, how they were doing things, um, which sort of makes sense now. Explain. So, the, I mean, initially they disappeared off uh, they missed the last couple of races, which, to be honest, we, you know, if we had our home track, we would do that, trying to get that little bit home track advantage, a few more runs just to fine tune yourself in. Um, so they disappeared off about three weeks before anybody else. Didn't seem out of norm at the time. Um, when we eventually got to Sochi, there was one day that we were coming up to the track uh, to do some sled maintenance work. We couldn't get in because they were having a military exercise, but there was somebody sliding at the time. Um, so we were just thought, all right, maybe somebody's getting some extra runs or the, or the, the people that do the, the, the training for it, the, the sort of development squad are just getting practice runs to make sure that they don't crash and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the, jokingly, I said at the bottom of the track, after we finished our fourth run, um, the Russians came down after us, obviously beat us by eight hundredths of a second, and then the next sled that came down beat them by three hundredths of a second in the four man. Well, they'd done the same in the two man, so they'd been beat, they'd missed out by a medal by a couple of hundredths on each one. And one of the guys, you know, threw threw his helmet down on the floor. The Russian guy threw his helmet down the floor, and it bounced across. And I said to one of my teammates, and I can't remember who it was, I was like, that, "That's Roid Ridge. He needs testing." I, I just sort of jokingly at the time but there was something that just didn't feel right when we were doing the interviews afterwards as you walk through the sort of media zone there was something that just didn't feel right but what I didn't want to do is say that in front of sort of the, the world's press because, oh man the controversy that would yeah, have caused would have been but also you would have possibly come across like a uh, a, a sore loser yeah and, big time and we were happy with our result you know we'd given 100% of you know, we just we as a team we did our best, and each man worked one hundred percent for for every other person in that team, and we couldn't ask any more than that. And at the time, we thought, Do you know what, we're one of the world's best teams, but today we've just been beaten by four other teams that are that are better. Um, you know, the Russian team started quicker than what they normally did because we were one of the top starting teams in the world, and then we started to get a little bit closer to closer than what they would normally. We just thought that was home advantage a bit like the you know the the extra player that the crowd bring on to a football team that 12th man type sort of thing um but yeah when I look back it's like yeah you were starting quicker because you'd all been doping um and when when it all came out when you know a couple of years on when this whole McLaren report came out and the list of people that came in and actually got sanctioned for it out of the eight Russians that were in the two sleds in front of them six of them were involved in it one of them got done for doping the following season, and then I think the other guy. So all eight of them had been done for doping at some point. Um, but the guy who actually threw his helmet down on the floor 
was the only one that tested positive for an illegal substance. All the rest of them were sort of found guilty for having adverse findings in terms of there was too much sort of salt in their in their urine, like excessive amounts that is not even possible for a human being to have in their in their urine. Yeah. Which shows that something's been covered up. But what they were doing was they'd three months, four months prior, they'd given a clean urine sample. Um by the time they'd come to the games, they'd obviously come back early to start throwing whatever it was down the neck. So when, and this is where it all got a little bit sneaky because it wasn't just like it was a couple of people. This was massive. It took hundreds of, you know, probably thousands of people within the background. Uh, and like the the Russian sort of special forces were involved and their, their secret police and all this sort of things were going. And what was happening was their samples were being brought into the, the testing room and then somebody was sneakily passing them through like a little mouse hole that was hidden behind a vent through into a, a secret room behind, which then somebody in that secret room was then swapping the samples over and passing them back through all labelled up. But they'd found a way to get into these bottles that apparently are tamper-proof. Um, there was a documentary about it, wasn't it? Was it, yeah, was it Icarus or something yeah, like that? Yeah, Icarus yeah. On, on Netflix is, is the story behind how we got the medal obviously we're not part of that story it's more it's all about the russians and how they got found out and the story behind that um, but ultimately that's that's how we got the medal because the russians were cheating so when when this was, all this was coming out when did you actually find out that you were going to receive the bronze medal um that was a, a long a long time so i remember being at i think i was at 40 commando at the, at the time and I knew there was a news press a news conference coming out. So originally, I think it was was it in the July of two thousand and sixteen that had a press conference, and it was all about athletics were uh, banned a lot of Russian or all of the Russians because of this McLaren fan, and probably slightly before that, the blacklisted people. And and um, I'd looked at that thinking this is just bigger than athletics. And then in the December of 2016 it came out that it was involved within the Sochi Olympics so that was when it was a bit uh, I remember being sat in the in the sergeant's mess watching it on the news thinking wow we've we've been we've been cheated here and I was actually a little bit angry a little bit sort of pissed off at the time that that Olympic moment of being able to stand on the podium had potentially been well, it had been taken away from us but it was when you think you're competing against clean athletes on a level playing field and then realise that you've been cheated out of one of the probably a once in a lifetime moment for most most athletes, it's it, yeah, it took a little bit of time to sort of get over get over that anger towards towards them. Yeah. I mean I, I I've read a little bit into it. I've not actually watched the Chris. It's one of the things that I've been saying for the probably the last three or four years that I was going to watch. I just never got around to watching it. But I know like the, you know the ins and outs of it, and and it's a crazy crazy story. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it actually took me, even though I knew it had came out, and I obviously knew the background to it all because we were tied up in in it all um, on the outside of it, um, and knowing the ins and outs. But it still took me twelve months to watch it because I was like, I don't want to. Yeah. Because, because it that's that's how it's affected us, and, and eventually I watched it, and it, and it is good, but you're just like, wow, this this wasn't like I say it wasn't a couple of people, it wasn't a coach and an athlete getting caught doping for for something. This was massive. 
I think it just shows how much sport means to people, means to countries yeah. as a world. You know, it's not just it's not just sort of you know people coming up through through their upbringing and being good at a sport and then they're competing at an international level. This is like governments. Yeah. This is governments conspiring to cheat so their athletes can win and make them look, make them look good, yeah. inevitably. Yeah. That's what it's about. And, that, and that's what it was. It was from their results in 2014, uh, sorry, in 2010, that they, they didn't do very well as a, as, a, as a nation, did Russia. So they implemented a plan to solve that for their home games. And that was by cheating on a mass, on a mass scale. That's crazy, isn't it? So when did you actually receive your bronze medal? So we, we got told in, um, although, you know, all of the new stuff came out in mid to end of 2016, we didn't actually get told until I think it was the March of 2019 that it was ours. 2019? Yeah. So that's, that's, that, that's when we got the phone call from the BOA. Because I remember I was driving down to Plymouth uh, and it was I got a phone call at seven o'clock in the morning. I went, Jacko, you got it. It's yours. What was that? What was that like? That must have been crazy. Yeah, we we sort of expected because we knew there was more and more people getting caught, and it was just and their their appeals were getting knocked back and knocked back. Um, but it was just that the time that it it took to to get to that point. And I, and I remember when I was sat in the office, at taking a step back to Forty Commando, we were. It had just come out that all these people had been caught and obviously the media were trying to get hold of me. My phone was read off um, from texts and messages and, and phone calls, but I'd been on the shop floor delivering rehab. So, and obviously not having my phone on me, when I got back to the office, I picked my phone up and literally my wife was ringing me as I picked the phone up and I answered it and I sat at my desk and she's like, you've got it. You've got the medal because of this, this, this and this. I couldn't speak to her. I actually physically cried at my desk for about five minutes, just just from pure emotion of all of that that emotional rollercoaster we've been through, the anger, the 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 sort of frustration, and it was frustration and fr- frustration one after the other because it was right. This person's appealing. This person's appealing. They're now appealing the appeal. They're now appealing the appeal that that that, that they've already appealed, and it just took so long to get through that actually. It was probably one of the only times in my life that I've been completely speechless and and just couldn't get any words out. I was just like, "Look, can I phone you back? I just can't speak to you at the minute because it it was I was just overwhelmed a little bit by emotion." Yeah, I get. I could only imagine that the relief that you would have got from that, knowing that you know the the people that finished two places in front of you cheated to get to that point. And then from 2016 through to 19, you're like that, well, you're kind of wondering what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's what, three years. Yeah. And, that, and it took that long, literally from obviously them announcing that in, in the back end of 2016 that it was um, involved in Sochi to us receiving it in November 2019, that, that was... That was it, you know, and it, it and it took that long, and we got presented in in London, and that's that's what the journey's been about. Do you know what? It's uh, 
it's quite it's quite weird because I never thought I'd ever be older than an Olympic medal. Yeah, it's, and you know, there's quite a few people have said that to me. Is like, I've never held an Olympic medal before. It's it's a weird thing. Do you know? Yeah, because we grow. I grew up with sport, and you know, I did athletics and I played. I played rugby when I was younger. It's uh, you, you never th- you never think that you'd even know somebody that would achieve that, and and this, you know, this is the pinnacle of of sport, isn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah. Man, you must be super proud to 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 have that. You know. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I think by the end of it. There was mixed emotions. It wasn't like sort of we'd been through the frustration, the happiness that we'd we got it, and then more frustration, and then that that up and down as we'd gone through it. But by the end of it, I think we were just so relieved that it it was that process was over, and mm. we'd actually got what we we deserved, which is quite quite a bizarre feeling. And think that is is this allow me because I retired in two th- middle of two thousand sixteen is. Have I been able to walk away from the sport properly, knowing that this there's always been hanging over us? This is like the last little yeah. sort of tick in the box to to actually walk away from the sport completely and retire. Would and you I, say that is kind of without being negative about it? Would you almost say when you got it, it was kind of an an anticlimax because because you've like you said before, you 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 could have placed on the podium. If they hadn't been doping, yeah, and and received it there, but because you've gone through all these stages of seeing it come out on the news, then it's taken three years for a government or a you know a sports body panel to sit down and go, well, actually, we're going to strip them of that, and it's going to go to them to eventually receive it and go, I've got it now. Yeah, it it was a little bit like that and I suppose the realism of it is you know when you, you and I've seen it from people who've got their medals at a games they obviously get little bits following on from that more of the media coverage possibly sponsorship coming in possible other little deals that might come off the back of straight off an Olympic Games and you've got a very small window to sort of jump on that to, to um, benefit from it I suppose but we got this on Obviously on the on the twenty first of November, and there was a little bit of media interest there at the time at the Team GB Ball. But the following day, it was a bit like, like what what do we do this? How 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 do we capitalise on this now? Yeah, has there been much interest? Maybe a little bit, but not not that much. But is that the realism of just receiving a an Olympic medal six years after you should have should have got it? Do I feel like an Olympic medalist? Yeah, I think so. Um, but it's still getting used to that fact of actually what what to do with this now. Where do I go from it? What have I done? Um, so it's yeah, it's just trying to. It's nice for the for the kids to look at. Yeah, but you know, you you've been you've been quite um, reserved with it as well, and I guess that's that's a, a a British mannerism, isn't it? Where you know you've. You've hit the pinnacle of your sport, which not many people can can say they've achieved that. And you know, I guess being use it as a as a Britishism, 
were quite reserved with it. So, you know, you know it's, it's quite funny you saying something yeah. like that because to me, somebody that's received an Olympic medal or has been an Olympian, let alone medaled in it, is such an amazing feat. You know, it, it's crazy. It's legendary status, isn't it, really? Yeah. I but I guess you don't see yourself like that, though, do you? No, I'm just... I'm, I'm just a, a, a humble guy you know at the end of the day uh, I've I've achieved some amazing things in my, my 43 years that I've been on on the planet so far you know as as well as you know being a Royal Marine and all the stuff that I've, I've achieved within that um, being an Olympian is a great achievement winning an Olympic medal there's, there's only ever been five bobsleigh medals for Great Britain ever ever won um, which again is an amazing achievement um, but for me my biggest achievement in life is just being plain old dad you know you, you can't get any better than that regardless of where the pinnacle of sport the pinnacle of whatever you're you're doing pinnacle of life is being a dad and that's what it comes back down to is we missed out on olympic podium but actually in 2014 all my little kiddies were here so when we got this in um, back in the 2019 I was actually able to share that moment with them, which as a parent probably means more to me than standing on an Olympic podium when they're not here. So it's it's looking at it in a slightly different way, but you know they were interested in it for about 30 seconds and then, <laughs> then realised obviously they yeah. couldn't unpeel it and eat it. Yeah, so yeah. then obviously the, the, the little sort of butty bar that was... That was there, and the little snack bar. So they, they turned their attention to that and started raging the the sort of cocktail sausages and the sandwiches. And yeah, it. Um, I think they they'll probably understand it more in years to come because they're only sort of four, four and five um, at, at the moment. But it's it was that thing of they understand Daddy was getting a medal, not really probably understanding what what for. But it was definitely a, a nice uh, a nice thing to share with them. Cool. Um, so, 2016, you said you, you retired from uh, from from bobsleigh. So, you know, what what was your what was your focus after that then? That was yeah. The focus after that was was difficult because um, although I had the the marine to come back to, it's very much, and I don't know whether having obviously mm -hmm. this medal thing hanging over us was was part of it, but from being in a that environment where you're so focused, you've only, you, you know, you, you think you're, you're quite open to all the world and everything that it offers, but you're in such a narrow tunnel of performance and life because it is your life that actually I found it not massively overwhelming, but it was definitely when I stepped over that threshold of retirement, you come back into that open world and everything's your oyster again but you've got no focus and that's the thing it's and, and many athletes go through this as well it's now you've got no focus and you're not having to you've not got that target of medals times distances whatever it is what's it's it's about finding what your purpose is in life and that's been that's been a challenge even now to to, to still work out um i think physically it and mentally I've had ups and downs. There's definitely some mental health issues going on in the background following retirement. Um, it hasn't helped. I mean, I'm obviously from a from a military background and a physical training background, it's to walk into a gym and then not want to train while you're in there is it's quite
quite tough. But when you've got no goal, no target, nothing to aim for, I'm not one of these people that just likes to go into a gym or, or, or do something that's just sort of half-assed. But you end up doing that because even though I've got all the knowledge of how to train people and do things for, when it come back to myself, I was a bit like, don't want to do this, not interested. So you'd end up doing mediocre sessions, which then leads you down that spiral even more that you don't want to train. And it's been quite difficult to just doing enough <clears throat> to doing what more, I should be doing more. Um, but it, like I say, that's, that's a, a affected me quite quite a bit, retirement, I think. It's still a work in progress to get out of it, but it's I'm getting there. Finding new challenges, new new things to do, and, and just trying to find something that I can enjoy, because that's ultimately why I retired in 2016, because I stopped enjoying the sport. Yeah. And, you know, and let, regardless of what level that you're at, whether it's grassroots or elite level, if you don't enjoy it, you're not, you're not going to do well at it and you're not going to stick at it. So that's what I'm trying to do now is just venture out into a couple of little bits and pieces and find something new, not to be competitive in, but just to go out and enjoy. Um, and that's sort of roughly where I'm at at, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you got your family and stuff like that as well, haven't you? And, you know, I can imagine trying to refocus on something else, whether it's going, I don't know, trying to be a competitive sportsman again with with children is, is difficult. Doing anything with kids, especially when they're yeah, young, is, yeah, yeah. Is, a, is a task in hand at that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, what, what are you looking at now? I mean, how many, you've got, what, a year, a couple of years? So I've got three years left in the military of, uh, if I want to take that, um, um, we'll, we'll just see little things that I'm I'm just playing about with at the minute. I've started doing a little bit more cycling uh, again, just because my body doesn't like the impact so much of, of running and other bits and pieces. Um, uh, but one thing I've started doing over the last month is sort of open water swimming, so a bit of swimming in the sea, um, and I like it. I'm, I'm by no means am I a swimmer. Uh, you know, I'm one of these people that sinks like a brick. And I'm not. I'm not a natural swimmer. What are you saying? You've got the frame for it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not 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 that streamlined, to be honest, in the water. But it's it's um, it's just nice. And I think from that mental health side of things, just being in the cold water, just just swimming, being able to relax, just chill out, and I, I just find it quite therapeutic as well as physically put it uh, and, and mentally putting myself out of my comfort zone a little bit because again, not not being a swimmer, being out in the open water is. Um, Although I'm confident in the water, it's still something that it, it's challenging me enough for me to go. Yeah, I, I like this, but relaxing enough to go. Yeah, I feel I feel in a better place when I get out of it after a half an hour or whatever we've spent in there. I've got um, I've got a book at home that I read a couple of months ago called The Blue Mind, and it talks about why as human as a human race we settle by the water and why we go on holiday, whether it's by a swimming pool or by the sea. And, and it talks about how how the water is entwined with our DNA and how we... Um, it sounds quite hippie doesn't it? Uh, but, uh, I suppose we were all fish at one point, weren't we? Many, many, <laughs> many, many millions of years ago. It's, it's really interesting because they, the, they look at lots of different studies and stuff. And, you know, it, if you're interested, it'd be worth a read in that. I mean, I was quite interested in, you know, my surfing and stuff. But, um, you know, the, the, the different things that they looked at, um, it was just like quite an interesting read, really. Yeah. 
The, the only thing I don't like about the open water swimming is jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> Not so keen on jellyfish, especially when you're swimming in the, and sometimes you can't see because it's a little bit murky, but there's been a couple of times where I've, I've put my hand on top of a jellyfish and you can feel it squidge as you put your hand on it. You're like, uh, no, I don't, no, I don't really like this. Yeah, my missus was a swimmer when she was, uh, when she was younger and, uh, she hates swimming in the sea because she can't see what's under there. Yeah. You know, at least in the swimming pool, you can, you can see what's there. I mean, you're not going to have sharks or any sort of like fish or anything like that in the swimming pool. But yeah, I could, I could see where that freak you out a little bit. I suppose it's all still quite new. I've only been doing it a month, but yeah, there's been a couple of times when you, you swim and you just see a, even a, just a little jellyfish flash past your goggles just in front of your face and it's like, oh, I don't, but you sort of try and swim around it quickly and move out of its way. But yeah, it's not, it's something I'll probably get, get used to, I think. Or maybe not, I just maybe don't like jellyfish. <laughs> Did you see any of that stuff of uh, Ross Edgley swimming around the UK? I did see it a little bit, yeah. I mean, uh, the, there'd be no way I could ever attempt anything <laughs> like, like that. What do you I, mean? I, I, I do well just to sort of do, do a mile. Um, and I know that's a long way, but we, we sort of do it in 250 metre lengths uh, of where where we sort of swim and then just have a little bit of a chit chat at each end and then sort of just mince about doing that. But yeah, to do something like that would be be a good goal, but definitely, definitely not achievable for a brick like me. Well, you can only try. You cannot. Well, you can only but try. Yeah, mate. I think we're going to wrap it up there, mate. Thank you so much for the um, for the conversation. Um, I think it's given a massive insight into you know bobsleigh, your Olympic scene and stuff like that. So thank you very much. The legendary status you have is 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 immense. Even though you probably look at me going, mate, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, thanks. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, and obviously, if we ever want to come on and chat again more than happy to talk about maybe performance mindset or something like that and how to get into a winning mindset we could maybe look at something along those yeah 100% let's do a part two to it yeah Roger Dodge John Jackson thank you very much well that's it if you enjoyed the podcast please leave a review and rating on your podcast provider also you can find me on Instagram under the Grumpy Surfer podcast thanks for listening